My name is Stephen Bernacki, and our agenda is pretty simple today. Uh, I'm going to share how you can get involved and ask questions in just a second. I'm going to introduce RQM Plus and today's panelists, and I'll pass it along to two of those panelists to present some slides that will set the stage for the discussion that will take up the remainder of the time. So, and during that discussion today, uh, we'd love nothing more than to field your questions. So if you regularly attend our panels, you probably notice a different platform this time around, but asking questions couldn't be easier. Just type your questions into the chat on the right side of the screen um, during the discussion portion of the event, and we'll be monitoring those. Um, in fact, we encourage you to test that out now. If you're, if you're feeling adventurous, uh, please feel free to introduce yourself in the chat as much as you're comfortable. Your full name would be great. Uh, your role if you want to, even your company if you want. Um, our goal is to bring value and solutions in these sessions, uh, but this year we want our monthly shows to feel a bit more inclusive. So we're all here to learn after all, and we sincerely thank you for being here. So continuing on, uh, we want to ensure you know, RQM Plus is a global medtech service provider focused on accelerating compliance and market success. Through our unparalleled expertise and industry knowledge, we deliver specialized solutions and expedite the journey along with full product lifecycle for med device and IVD companies from concept to commercialization and continuing through post-market. Uh, there's a bit more about our services at the end of the handout you receive via email today. I'll drop another link to that in the chat when the presentation gets started. Uh, and of course, you can go to rqmplus.com to learn more. So on to today's panelists, all of whom are from RQM Plus today. Let's start with Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation, Jay Cuddy. Jay began at RQM Plus in February 2021 coming from BSI, where he spent seven years in CE marking technical and clinical leadership roles with specific expertise in cardiovascular product development. Jay's experience spans new product development, biomechanics, biomaterials, regulatory affairs, clinical strategy, clinical evaluations, and biological safety evaluations. Next, we have Taryn Mead, Director of Biological Evaluation Consulting at RQM+. Taryn provides consulting services pertaining to biocompatibility evaluation with a focus on chemical characterization, study design, and execution, as well as supporting interactions with global regulatory agencies. Third, we have Kevin Rowland, Director of R&D at RQM+. Kevin has been working in the laboratory for 14 years and has served as team leader for the GCMS and LCMS groups, as well as laboratory manager. His work is focused on interpretation of high-resolution, accurate mass MS data for identification of non-target unknown compounds with a strong focus on analysis of extractables and leachables for medical devices. Next up, we have Jim Wren, Director of Consulting Services at RQM Plus. Jim joined RQM Plus and was initially at Matrix, where he had been working in consulting since July 2014. Jim's been engaged with the entire lifecycle management of medical devices since 1987, working in research, startups, and global enterprises. He and his team support client compliance needs across the globe. Last but not least is Alexia Haralambus, Senior Principal of RQM Plus. Alexia joined RQM Plus this past July and has over 10 years of experience in device regulatory affairs, having spent multiple years at the FDA as well as in industry. Her primary focus is on regulatory submissions and global regulatory strategies for new product development across a variety of therapeutic areas for clients ranging from startup to large size. Uh, and finally, our moderator today, and hopefully for the rest of 2024, is Vice President of Business Development, Teresa Miles. Teresa has 30 years working in healthcare and 12 and a half spent with Arcum Plus. So that's who's contributing from our side today. And now I'm going to pass it off to Jim and Jay to cover some of the slides before we get into the conversation. So I'm going to share my screen and then Jim and Jay, you can, you can get rolling. You should see it now. 
I don't, we don't see the screen, Steve. Are we supposed to be seeing still it? Still coming through. I think it's still coming through. Yeah. There it is. You see it now? Span awesome. of PFAS issues? There it is. Okay. okay. Go for it. There we go. So I, I think part of this is just understanding what a PFAS is and the changing sort of climate that's going on right now. PFAS is a very broad range of chemicals, these fluorinated carbons that are used throughout industry, food, medical devices. They're very ubiquitous. There's you know 15,000 plus chemicals that are involved in this. There's been a lot of issues with this coming out recently in terms of wastewater contamination, ground contamination, EPA at the US has been involved, EU is looking at putting restrictions in place. All of these are coming to a head and there have been a lot of lawsuits on that coming out as well against some of the contaminations that have happened. 3M has been wrapped up in this. So near term, there's issues as well as longer term where we're looking at getting out of the market of PFAS completely, limiting it as much as practical. But short term, 3M is getting out of the business. And so this is something that we need to be aware of because at least in the US, there's a lot of medical devices that use 3M materials, either directly from 3M or through materials supplied by other suppliers who source from 3M. So this is one of the things we need to be looking forward at as we go forward. Um, this is a material change. And we need to be understanding that as we change out these materials for medical devices, there may be a fairly large impact coming with this. And we'll need to look at the impact assessment. We'll need to look at the regulatory implications of this. Um, class one, we can probably handle that fairly straightforwardly in-house. Class two devices, again, we can handle a lot of that in-house. There may be some notifications with some regions. Class three, there's gonna be a lot more impact particularly where we have a lot of patient contact with some of these materials. So these are things we need to be looking at closely as we look at our impact. <clears throat> now, in terms of the timing of this, where we were looking at 2030 plus, where we were starting to see some of those EU implications coming, where, you know, out of 2035, we might be seeing issues with some things coming off the market for the EU. Now we're looking at, and that really would have affected new product development more so than ongoing product. We're seeing with 3M exiting, that timeline has been pulled in significantly. We know that last time buys need to be going in. We know that there's gonna be issues with the product we're using coming off the market. And we're gonna to need to be looking at alternatives. It, because this is a significant design change, we need to be drilling down through all of our materials, not just in our bomb, but down to what is our supplier using for manufacturing aids? Where is our supplier getting their material from? Um, if we're using a supplier that we think is giving us the PFA-based material at Teflon or something else, are they getting their material from 3M? So all of these things need to be looked at all the way down through the supply chain. We know this takes time to understand what is the impact of this and then begin to put into place uh, changes that are required. Look at alternatives, understand if those alternatives are equivalent, both in terms of physical, chemical properties, and what is the risk to you know, biocompatibility testing and other kinds of characterization that needs to be done. 
jump to the next slide maybe. So we've been looking at kind of where we are on this. Um, going down through that, you will need to be going through your bombs, your material lists, going through your test reports, understanding what you have, um, going down through your supply chain. And going down through the supply chain is usually what takes the most time in that impact assessment. We see typically, you know, five to 10% fairly quick responses, but to understand all the way down through, this is not just looking at your plastics. This is looking at even your alloys. How are they machined? What are your degreasers? Because often the manufacturing aids have PFAs included. And if those materials ultimately are sourced from 3M, a substitute will need to be provided. And then we need to go through and understand when we start looking at this impact, a substitute material may be similar, but not identical. Will this have physical or chemical changes? Will there be a coefficient of friction change? Could there be changes in your clinical performance based on that? Um, these are used across all kinds of medical devices, and we need to be very aware of, for our device, what are all those material changes going to impact? And then once we understand that, what is going to be the global impact as we start rolling this change out? Our timeline is short. I think in the next slide, we go through kind of where we would see the steps that we go through in terms of understanding, you know, getting a good understanding of what's in our devices all the way down through our suppliers, developing a strategy. What are we going to need to go do? What additional testing do we need to do? What is our clinical evaluation going to be? Do we need to do that up front or could we include that as part of a post-market clinical follow-up study? Um, we have to look at the global competitiveness. What is the impact of those changes and how do we roll all this out? Um, I see this as a four-year process you know, to replace a material conservatively. We've got two years remaining. So we need to get our last time buys in. We need to get all of our materials set up. We need to have a buffer of material planning and then begin to get things in place so that we are in the queue to get everything done, our testing, our filings, our notifications, and really have our teams fully engaged. Jay, anything to add to that? Jim, I think you covered it. And as we move forward in this discussion, I want to address um, some of the outcomes from the survey. I think about 71% of the people um, elected the option stating that they're very keen on hearing about alternate material selection which to me points to where industry likely would be headed. We'll talk about that, um, the implications around that, and we'll even talk about, uh, Taryn and Kevin will address these alternate material selection items from a chemical characterization standpoint, of which the, the lab has a tremendous amount of experience. So let's, we could, we, Teresa, we could get right into the questions. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I actually think it's a great segue, Jay. Thank you so much. I think uh, the survey was resounding, right? And that's mm -hmm. the concern, how to find an alternative. Can we just go ahead and dig into that? And Taryn, I guess I'll point to you if you want to give us, kick us off with that. Um, what are the concerns with trying to find an alternative? I know that's a, that's a loaded question. That Where could do be we an begin? hour. <laughs> <laughs> that could be an hour. Well, there are many. I mean, application specific materials are really the challenge here, right? There are some instances in which a PFAS 
material or constituents of a material could simply be removed and that may be suitable for some clinical applications. So there are, we've heard about some suppliers already who are simply removing the, the fluorinated constituents of concern and not replacing um, those. And so the material essentially is unchanged aside from that modification to remove that constituent, which is perhaps the best case scenario for medical mm -hmm. device manufacturers if you happen to be in that situation. But that only works in certain clinical applications that don't rely on the fluorinated constituent, right, for some performance characteristic. So if you have a device which really does rely on those particular material properties, this is obviously a more challenging situation. Um, mm -hmm. And I think Kevin probably has some thoughts on this from all of the years of testing that the lab has done. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll punt to Kevin to share some perspectives here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Thanks, definitely. Taryn. Taryn. I think one of the one clear of the things, things is that, is that based, on based on the variety of variety different, different applications, applications and, and different devices, different devices that, that may contain some materials that, that, that could be that affected, affected here, here. Um, it's, um, it's, it's difficult, difficult to, give to give a precise, a precise you know, you know Blanket recommendation, blanket recommendation for, for types of materials, types of materials. but, but um, um, what we can, what we can do, do is help inform those inform decisions. Those decisions. Um, um, we have a we lot have a of experience, experience with medical with device medical testing, device especially, testing especially, coming especially coming from the angle of complete of understanding, understanding of the chemistry of those, of those devices, devices and the materials that are used. That are used. Um, so, you know, there's, there's always going to be some amount of testing that we can do. And, and I think later we can probably get into some of the details of how that testing might work. Um, but additionally, at this point right now, when decisions are being made about potential materials to replace something that might be affected by this change, we can do some preliminary testing and look at the chemistry of those uh, potential replacements and then extrapolate down the line to whether or not we may expect there to be some challenges in the eventual full chemical characterization that needs to be done to support the change from a regulatory perspective. So there's a lot of help we can give. Unfortunately, it, it doesn't quite get as simple as, hey, just switch to this particular material. Um, but some smart decisions can be made right now to make sure that down the line when there's a lot less time, uh, we don't run into any major problems. Excellent. <clears throat> So, Kevin, you mentioned smart decisions. Does that, you know, Jim alluded to starting with a gap assessment of materials. What, in terms of just trying to think ahead to what testing may be necessary, is there a correlation and is there something people should be concerned with when they're starting those gap assessments? And as you're saying, trying to make those smarter decisions, what should they be watching out for, paying attention to? Uh, and maybe there's a primary concern you can talk about. Yeah, certainly, you know, obviously, I think as as both Jim and Taryn mentioned, the properties of those potential replacements is really important. I mean, it has to be fit for purpose. Otherwise, we're, we're not going to be talking about it at all. So, you know, maybe that's the obvious one. I think um, further from there, um, those potential materials, um, while they may be not expected to contain any of these fluorinated chemicals, um, there may be some processing aids, as Jim had mentioned, or some other factors that bring these chemicals along for the ride. And obviously, the global interest in PFAS materials relates to their pervasiveness throughout a variety of different industries. So there can be situations where they may be unexpected in a particular material, 
and a manufacturer could choose to change to that material where PFAS is unexpected, but they may still be there due to some downstream processing that may happen. Um, you know, who knows where it could be the supplier of a supplier or even further. Um, so that is certainly one of the things that we can really help with so that um, those material selection decisions are made intelligently with that insight into the chemistry specifically and not only just the properties. But one thing that we've been seeing, if you do the impact assessments, if you're going through your bombs, you're restricting yourself to what you've designed into that part. What we often see in terms of the manufacturing aids is we get very little information from our suppliers. And we struggle with that even to get a full understanding for our submissions and our biocomp work of what's actually being used by our suppliers as some of those aids. That's where we're probably going to find limitations in terms of our impact assessment. And we don't want to be surprised a year and a half down the road and find out, oops, we had a change that we weren't expecting. So we really do need to get our suppliers engaged early to understand what is being added. I think I want to make sure, Alexia, make sure we come back to the regulatory side of that of that comment that Jim just made. I do want to go to, we're getting a couple questions in. Fantastic job from the audience sending these questions through, so thank you. I want to get to a few of them. Um, Lauren is asking a question around the fact that right now most definitions of the PFAS include the fluoropolymers. Is there a push to exclude those as they're considered to be polymers of low concern? Does anyone have a comment on that? Maybe Kevin or even Jay? Well, I know the EPA from a U.S. perspective. There are state-specific laws, and shout out to my friend uh, Pete Lessing from MedDevice Alley, who is likely on this chat here. Pete, please feel free to chime in. Um, there are state-specific laws, like, for example, in the state of Minnesota, you can use PFAS substances for medical device manufacture. Right? You can't use it for other purposes, but there is an exemption for med device manufacture. But at the federal level, the EPA is also starting to look into this. The EU is going to consider PFAS substances under the REACH proposal. But under the ambit of all of this, I am yet to hear that there is going to be an exception for a certain class of polymers. That's not something that I've heard. If it's something that they're considering, or if it's something that, Lauren, you're aware of, please do let us know. But that's not something that I've heard. Now, what brings us to this particular juncture is you know, 3M's decision to pull out. And there was a question in, from the audience about, are we going to talk about Solvay and PPG? I've heard that Solvay is going to go the same route. But when it comes to PPG, what proportion of their PFAS substances are they sourcing from 3M? Because 3M is one of the principal suppliers, although there are many other players involved. So those are some of the things that we really need to be careful about. In addition to what um, Jim and Kevin had mentioned in terms of the bill of materials, as well as knowing what processing aids your suppliers are using. Your suppliers may be sourcing it from a supplier who's sourcing it from 3M. So, you, so on the face of it, you may be thinking PPG, but you're likely going to have the same impact as somebody who's directly sourcing from 3M. So just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, and, and I'll just add on the um, polymer versus small molecule topic. There may be instances where even if these substances are considered acceptable in light of an overall risk-benefit analysis for a medical device, environmental concerns can still trump that. 
So for example, there was a situation that I was involved in um, a couple of years ago where a, a component, a major component of a medical device was produced by a certain manufacturer in Europe. The European environmental agency in that country did soil testing, found chemicals that they didn't like that were related to the manufacturing of this component, and essentially told the manufacturer that they were no longer allowed to make it after a certain amount of time. And a full risk assessment was done for the medical device. At the time, the medical device manufacturer concluded that the risk was acceptable to them. But nevertheless, the environmental agency's restrictions on the manufacturing of that material ultimately we're going to trump the medical device manufacturer's conclusions in that case. Right. Um, and so, you know, even if as a medical device industry, everybody decides these materials are likely less risky than they are in terms of environmental exposure, those environmental concerns can still restrict manufacturing such that the materials may no longer be available for medical devices. So I think that's something to keep a really close eye on as we see how this topic evolves and perhaps not rely too much on the conclusions that are drawn specific to medical devices, unless you know for sure that you have long-term supply continuity in a country that, where there isn't that environmental concern. Just want to build, build ahead, on that for the trace, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, when it ahead. comes to PFAS substances, it's, yeah, 3M's getting out of it, but a lot of manufacturers do check out what your state laws say, because I know in Minnesota, starting 2026, you're going to have to quantify the amount of PFAS substances in your waste. So talking about environmental concerns, uh, you're going to need methodology techniques ready by 2026 because you're going to have to report the amount of PFAS substances in your in your waste, once again, uh, from an environmental standpoint. Teresa, if you don't mind, I think this is where we we should pivot in terms of understanding the regulatory impact. Um, there was a question around Tyvek, and I will address that, but I want to invite Alexia to maybe shed some light on the regulatory impact from a U.S. perspective. Yeah, sure. So just, you know, to echo what both yourself, Jay, and Taryn just talked about, like, we, you know, it's hard to say what exactly, what the direction is going to be from the FDA in terms of how they're going to implement restrictions or um, certain guidance on um, PFAS usage in medical devices. Um, we have seen a little bit of precedent. So I guess just for some context, um, there are at least 12 federal agencies that have implemented some sort of um, PFAS restrictions or they're actively working on mitigating um, PFAS issues in human health as well as the environment. So EPA, I know that was one that was mentioned a couple times, but um, the CDC, DOD, um, you know, even even NOAA is looking at PFAS in the ocean or in marine mammals. Um, FDA, so FDA hasn't really issued anything yet on medical devices. They have what they have done is they've started restricting certain PFAS in food packaging. Um, I think one of, you know, kind of alluding to the question earlier about um, excluding certain fluoropolymers um, depending on their level of concern. I, you know, I think short-chain PFAS, there's, there are some that FDA has decided to restrict fully, and there's some that they've decided to continue exempting from the restrictions. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say where FDA is going to go with their particular guidance for devices, but we've seen what's been going on in the EU. We've seen, you know, the Stockholm Convention, that was something that was already 
you know, that came out back in like 2009. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if FDA follows suit for medical devices. Um, you know, Maine is another state that's also exempting certain PFAS from restrictions, but um, what's a little bit different from what we're seeing in the EU, where they're specifically restricting types of PFAS, Maine is simply increasing the reporting requirements that are that are going to be required if you're going to keep PFAS in your medical products. Um, so it seems like everybody's taking a little bit of a different approach to, to the issue. And I think um, as Kevin and, and Jim were talking about earlier, one inherent complexity to this PFAS issue is having this limited understanding of where the PFAS are actually present in the products. Um, you know, whether it's truly in your build materials or if it's um, simply just present as a byproduct of your other processes or, or manufacturing um, processes, or if it's coming from a supplier of a supplier of a supplier. Um, so I think that, you know, industry fully understanding and being able to define where those PFAS are present will also be helpful to FDA and other regulatory health agencies in developing guidance on how to restrict PFAS or what to even do with PFAS, right? Because it may not be productive if there's just a blanket restriction on, on PFAS or certain types of PFAS. Um, and, you know, it, it's also, you know, it, it's... It also becomes irrelevant, right? Because um, if the PFAS availability for manufacturing can't be maintained, then um, because suppliers are already deciding to cease production using those materials, then it um, it's hard to say, you know, what exactly regulatory guidance will do in those situations. So I can also see um, potential for a device shortage in the future if, you know, if alternatives are not identified or if there's not enough guidance provided on um, identifying alternatives. And we saw with EUMDR, um, device shortages started causing these iterative delays in the regulation. You know, people were kind of trying to solidify their interpretations of, of the regulation. And um, I think a similar thing would likely happen here once FDA starts putting out guidance about PFAS. Um, so yeah, there, it's at this point in time, I don't I don't necessarily see any sort of backing off of restrictions um, from health authorities, FDA notified bodies, but um, you know it's definitely still in manufacturers' best interest to be proactive and you know, identify, start finding alternatives to these PFAS materials, you know, before before all that starts happening. Yeah. Thanks, Alexia. I want to address the question that came in around Tyvek, right? Why not address it and treat it just like EU treated the whole Tyvek change as well as the FDA? It was addressed and handled differently in the US versus in the EU. The FDA worked with DuPont in that case. DuPont was able to come up with pretty much an exact uh, alternate material with it was almost identical. Um, and they were able to provide all manufacturers with all of the background data. And the FDA was okay with that. But the EU was a different story. A significant majority of the notified bodies considered it a significant change, which necessitated a certificate reissue following a review, all, even though it was an almost identical material. Now, the situation here with PFAS is a lot more nuanced because when we say PFAS, we're not talking about one material. It's a huge family of thousands of materials when it comes to medical devices and IVDs is probably 
hundred or so materials. So it's not like 3M is providing or suggesting a particular alternate. No, they're just getting out of that business. So it's not any one material. So it's unlikely that the situation is going to be as straightforward and as clear as the Tyvek situation. Okay, so that's baseline calibration. Even in the Tyvek situation, EU considered it to be a significant change. So this is most likely going to be a significant change in the EU. With the FDA, whether you need a PMA supplement or yet another 510K submission really depends on all that that is going to change or, or will be necessitated to change by way of the PFAS alternate. So that remains to be seen in the US. And the EU, I think, is a lot more straightforward in the current regulatory climate, which is still a little pedantic as far as the MDA is, FDA, I'm sorry, the MDR is concerned. It is going to be a significant change. You can take that for, for granted. So what's going to happen in that situation and regulatory folks be ready to be called conservative by your company. <laughs> but, and I want to weave this in with the survey result that we saw, right? 71% are really interested in finding alternate materials. So this is going to lead to a slew of different considerations. If it's a large manufacturer, say for example, the Abbott's, Medtronic's, Philips or, you know, um, Boston size of the world, you are dealing with a huge product portfolio and likely there are substitutes that you've already identified. And you're probably thinking, you know what, I'm just going to slot in this other substitute that we know works pretty well on another product portfolio. We'll slide it in here and we're going to call it a non-significant change and we're going to roll on. And that's how we're going to compress that potentially four-year timeline into what may be a non-significant change. At the risk of being called conservative, it doesn't really matter to me, but that, that approach, you need to really consider that approach very carefully. And, and what are some of the items that you need to bear in mind in, con in conjunction with that kind of an approach is one, obviously, what level of regulatory risk do you want to take? And that's going to depend on whether you're dealing with a product certificate, like a class three certificate or a 2B implantable in the EU, which has a product specific certificate, or are you dealing with just a full quality assurance type of a certificate for lower class devices in the EU? If it's a quality certificate that you're dealing with, you could potentially take a little bit of a risk because you know you are permitted to make significant changes under the certification that you received for your quality management system. And then your file is going to be sampled later on at that point if the notified body objects to the change that you've made for some reason, finds that the change that you've made has not been qualified adequately, either from a chem characterization perspective or the fact that now equivalence isn't really panning out because you've changed that material significantly. You still have time to go out and collect the additional clinical data that is necessitated by the need for an additional PMCF because equivalence isn't panning out, or you have enough time to conduct that additional clinic, um, chemical characterization. So for lower classification devices, you could be a little more risk-taking, so to speak, be a little cons less conservative. But for higher class devices that have a product certificate, you're gonna have to be really careful because if the notified body objects to that material change, even if it's a material that you have experience with in a different product portfolio, 
the impact assessment should tell you what that change is going to impact. Does, is it going to have a serious impact on equivalence? Is it going to have a serious impact from a chem characterization standpoint? And these are all items that have direct impact to the GSPRs. So there, being a little less conservative, may come back to bite you. I'm saying may. It really depends on what that impact assessment tells you. So it's going to depend. In the EU, almost certainly it's going to be a significant change if you're going the alternate material route. And then that has an impact not only on your chem characterization, but also on your overall route to conformity in terms of equivalence or uh, what additional proactive PMCF you will need to conduct if you're going that route. And the level of conservatism, conservatism that you need in that, you know, in that approach is really going to depend on whether it's a low-risk device or a high-risk device. So I've tried to weave in many different regulatory concepts in here, but it's all very important to consider in terms of formulating your approach in case you're going the alternate material route. I'll end my rant there. <laughs> that was a good one, Jay. Um, no, that was very that was very good. You touched on it several, as you mentioned, several different areas that we agreed we really wanted to make sure we talked about. So thank you very much. Um, I did want to circle back to a question from Justin because I just don't want to lose sight of it. And I wasn't sure mm -hmm. where it fit, but I still think it's a, a pertinent discussion. He's asking, is there a comprehensive dose response data <clears throat> excuse me, that is critical for PFAS to establish safety standards and regulations, assess cumulative health effects, and protect vulnerable populations? We have a bit of an echo, so make sure everyone has their echo cancellation on, please. It, who would like to talk to that? Jay, you can talk again. It's okay. But if someone else would like to take it, that'd be great. Uh, I can make a first comment on this if you'd like, Jay, unless you want to keep going. Oh, please, yeah, um, go ahead. I, I would just say there's a lot of data available, but a lot is also still being generated. And I'm not sure that there's really like a centralized, agreed upon set of data that everybody has aligned on using um, to establish or to evaluate risk to patients. So, you know, there's a lot that's evolving in the toxicology area on this. Um, some of our friends in the toxicology space have done quite a bit of work in this area, and I would encourage you to check out some of their resources. Um, Gradient Corporation, who we work with for some of our toxicology work, has, has done quite a bit in this area. So check out what they've, they've got through their website. But, and then also the Society of Toxicology, a lot of its members are contributing at the moment to research in this area. I've seen a few pieces come out lately, and I think there's going to be a lot more at the their annual meeting that's coming up in March. Um, but there are, you know, there are, of course, indications that these chemicals are problematic in certain applications, some indications of cancer migration and things like that. But it hasn't, I don't think, arrived at a very harmonized position yet on exactly what set of data everybody should be using for points of departure for risk assessments. So I don't know if anybody else wants to add to this. Yeah, just maybe something just quickly. Maybe something I think quickly. maybe one of the yeah, elephants in the room here is something that Jim mentioned at the very beginning when we got started, and, and that really complicates the toxicology, and that's the, the simple fact that this is not one thing we're talking about. This is tens of thousands of individual chemicals that, that have different properties and, and very likely different tox um, issues related to those different chemistries. So I think that's one thing that, that is certainly going to complicate the issue of determining 
what this broad group of chemicals has in terms of um, toxicological risk. You stole my next. You you stole my next question, Kevin. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you about the. You know, we're not just talking about one, one substance, so I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that. Do you want to expand on the chemical characterization challenges? You mentioned them just now, but can you talk a little bit more about it? I think it's really important from that risk that Jay talked about. How far do you need to go to actually get the information you need to find an appropriate alternative? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, we've touched a little bit upon the distinction between sort of higher molecular weight, PTFE, FEP, those sort of fluoropolymers, and the smaller, you know, potential byproducts from production of those chemicals, or really anything else. There are a large number of other small molecule fluorinated chemicals that someone might use during processing, um, whether that's, you know, manufacturing aids or other cleaners or other things, you know, fluorinated chemicals are, are pretty pervasive, um, you know, like, like a lot owing to their, their properties and, and their unique nature. Um, so there is that distinction. And then just the sheer number of particular chemicals presents uh, a fairly significant analytical challenge in, in terms of just quantifying those chemicals. Um, you know, we have a variety of different strategies here that, that we use both to get to um, very, very low sensitivities, and some of these may be of concern, you know, one of the primary concerns, at least, um, that I know of in, in the toxicology of these chemicals is bioaccumulation. So that tends towards analytical thresholds that are very, very low. So methods that are very, very sensitive for some of these chemicals become important. Um, but then in general, in, in just sort of looking at a material and its potential for um, containing some of these materials, sometimes it's it's important to understand the total quantities of all of them all put together. So you can make sort of a simple assessment of, hey, do I have a PFAS problem here or not? And so methods that get at the total fluorine content are um, of use there. Those analytical methods are, are quite complicated. Um, but through some, some work that we've done over the past 10 years, we do have some some tools that can help uh, in understanding that, but um, you know, ultimately, it's it's a complicated web. It's it's really not um, not simple to address analytically such a wide variety of different chemicals because uh, simply having a lot of fluorine atoms on a particular chemical really doesn't uh, dictate its analytical behavior, and all sorts of different other functional groups are present on those chemicals. Thank you. I wanted to see, we do have, this feels like a fairly specific question from Laura, but I think we should try to answer it and it might be in line with what you're talking about, Kevin. She said, we have a material that is changing across all of our portfolios, U.S. class two and three. If you get approval first in the U.S. on one of these products, could you potentially document to file for the U.S. class two using this as rationale as long as no performance specs aren't affected? So I think she's asking, right, initially, if you do your assessment, do the appropriate testing, have the information that you need. I think this also leads into something for Alexia to answer. Uh, yeah, is that even a scenario that's going to work? I guess that's the question. Very interesting question. Yeah, and it's, um, I'm not going to just give the blanket, it depends answer, but um, <laughs> this does touch on, you know, the the core or the crux of FDA's deciding when to change or when to submit a 510k for a change um, logic and 
I think I think um, Laura, you touch on a few different points in that um, decision making flow. Um, a couple of the things you have to think about, right? Um, are there is there an impact or change to the contact duration or type of the material, and then are there any increased or new biocompatibility concerns um, based on the risk assessment that you performed as a result of the change to this material, not just for one product but across all the products? I think one of the things that um, you know really presents itself here in its in this question is um, FDA does ask you to consider, have you used the same exact material um, in another similar legally marketed device with the same formulation, the same processing, same type and duration of contact? Um, and if the answer to that is yes, and like you're saying, no performance specs are affected, it may be possible to document to file. But um, I think you also have to remember that um, FDA is looking at each device um, with respect to its intended use. So, uh, you know, across your portfolio, not sure how different the intended uses are across the different products. So if you are changing this one material to be used across a bunch of different class two and class three products, um, perhaps if they are similar enough or if they're all using a similar method or in the similar space or anatomical area, it may be more likely that you could document to file um, if there are no performance specifications that are impacted. Um, I think that's definitely a possible scenario, and it is hard to say. You know, ultimately, um, it comes down to what the products are, and also the cumulative changes that have occurred to that product over the course of time, right? So this is we're just talking about a change of material, right? But if there have been other changes to the product. Um, and they may not all be the same across the different products in the portfolio that you're talking about, then that may be a reason that a letter to file or a document to file is not appropriate. So that's my, that's my it depends, but also um, it may be possible answer. Yeah, Alexia, I have a follow-up question on along these lines. I'm sure there are other manufacturers in the same boat. Is this something that could be part of the predetermined change control plan? that you could go to the FDA with? Well, the predetermined change control plan is a little bit more specific to software applications at this point in time. Um, I haven't seen it being used as much for um, changes to physical materials. Um, but I thought the FDA was open to considering that all across, but maybe that's not the case. I think they are thinking about that. So okay. this could potentially, you know, depending on the wide-ranging impacts of mm. a bunch of manufacturers having to find alternatives to PFOS now, um, this mm. might be an approach that FDA or other health authorities take in trying to accommodate, you know, the volume of changes that are going to be coming their way. But that is an interesting mm. thought. Um, I, I think that might actually be a great solution um, to, to handling some of the regulatory burdens that might be coming coming right. their way. So. Yeah. I mean, the EU doesn't really have that kind of a yeah. formulation, so to speak, since we're in the chemical world, but uh, just kidding. But if the FDA is open to that, I think that could that could really save a lot of burden. Uh, maybe the EU will come up with something like that too. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> Thanks, Alexia. Thanks, Laura, too, for that great question. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, what is this 
all of the discussion that we're having today, what's the impact on biological safety evaluations mm. and or clin- I know another can of worms <laughs> and or clinical evaluations? Because I do feel as though a lot of people, again, we had a lot of regulatory people sign up. Right. And this is their world. So what's this? What is this impact? Where where do we need to be concerned? Anybody? An excellent question. <laughs> I'll, I'll let somebody else talk and then I'll come in later. <laughs> Anybody want to take it? All right. I'll. Sorry, right. I was attempting to unmute myself. I can no start, worries. and then Jay, I know you're gonna have some things to chime in on with the clinical evaluation, particularly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I mean, regardless of what material you're switching to, whether you're trying to do a like for like or a totally different material formulation, you are of course going to have to do or update a biological risk assessment. Um, so I'll I'll narrow my answer to that piece. Um, there's probably not a scenario in which you have to do nothing in terms of at least evaluating the change um, for potential biological safety risks. So starting with something like a biological evaluation plan or risk assessment is going to be critical here um, for this area specifically. And we'd probably suggest thinking about a grouping approach if you are a medical device manufacturer that makes a range of products that are all impacted by a change like this. You know, if you have the ability to establish groups or families with, as Alexia mentioned, similar clinical applications, which use, which are going to have a similar um, new material solution that may be able to help you reduce the amount of overall effort and testing that has to be done um, to qualify the new material. So establishing a worst case device or a handful of devices, and then doing all of your qualification work on those, including for this area specifically, chemical characterization testing, potentially biological testing, and then using that to apply to the rest of the product family is probably going to be essential for medical device manufacturers with larger portfolios. Those who only make, you know, one or two devices um, probably will have the luxury of considering them individually. Um, I, I would also say that The extent of impact here depends on whether you're looking longer term or shorter term and whether you have the ability to move away from a PFAS-based material. So there are some products where currently there isn't another material available which has the same um, performance characteristics and will therefore work for the clinical application. And so in those cases, and also in cases where, you know, perhaps somebody makes a product only for the U.S. or not for the EU and therefore feels comfortable taking the risk of sticking with a material that does contain PFAS, but maybe just has to get away from their current 3M or Solvay material, for example. In those cases where you're doing sort of a like-for-like substitution, it might make sense to do comparative testing and try to establish equivalence so that you aren't required to repeat literally every qualification test that you've ever done. So this applies heavily to biological assessments and probably also has some bearing on your overall clinical evaluation, because if you can establish chemical equivalence through some sort of comparative study, you have the potential that you may not need to repeat all of the rest of it. So for example, like if in, in our lab, we do comparative studies where we have software that looks at individual peaks and determines whether they're unique to, you know, 
one test article or another, and then only those peaks which are unique actually get looked at for further identification and quantitation. And that significantly reduces the burden compared to a complete chemical characterization study um, of, let's say, your new and your old device. So some, some approach like that could be helpful in getting you a pathway, particularly if you're doing you know, one of these like-for-like -like substitutions um, that minimizes the amount of overall testing that's involved in a biological risk assessment and potentially clinical evaluation which Jay seems like a good time to punt to you to talk about the clinical piece. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe, sure. Well, maybe, sorry, oh, sorry. So, so sorry, Jay. I, I just want to yeah, cut no, the line a little bit and just highlight what, what Taryn just said, because I think it really relates to something that's lurking in the background of, of this whole discussion. Um, Laura in the audience sort of alluded to it earlier, and you know, I'll highlight it that you know, this, this change has a potential to have a lot of manufacturers doing a lot of this type of testing and there may be a lot of submissions going through the regulators based on all of this so that type of um, testing that Taryn mentioned is really important to try to lessen that burden and and get really what's important in front of the regulators so you know I, I just wanted to jump in there and say you know there, there's likely to be a lot of this testing going through so the the lab doing that testing, whether that's the, the specific chemical characterization part or other things, needs to have a good process in place so that they can get it done in a timely manner and not, not wind up in a situation where there are stockouts of devices because this this just can't get done in time. So sorry, Jada, to just to jump no, in line, but I just wanted to highlight that. that. That's great, Kevin, because I actually I I did want to circle back to Laura's comment around that. And I think it's we already know that the notified bodies are overwhelmed, right? So we're just adding one more thing to the pile, unfortunately. Jay, go ahead and dig into clinical evaluations. We have a couple of really excellent questions that'll link us back into the lab and technique, but go ahead and talk about uh, clinical evaluations, please. Hey, we we have some notified body reviewers in the audience. Maybe we should have them chime in, um, but. No, Taryn and Kevin, I completely agree with you. And in fact, I want to add to that biological evaluation specter, so to speak, before we segue into clinical evaluation. Honestly, I don't see how manufacturers can avoid chem characterization, especially given, you know, what chem characterization is a requirement for NX2 6.1B second indent, right, in the in the MDR. So in, in, in case there is an alternate material, even if it's something that you have experience with on another product portfolio, I'm not sure how you can avoid chem characterization because you're going to have to, at a bare minimum, be able to show that your margins of safety haven't been impacted. And you have to talk about your ENL depending on what type of device it is and all of that. And if it is, um, then probably you can say that, hey, there is no impact on clinical evaluation. And for that, you need chem characterization data. You need chem characterization data to be able to, quote unquote, ward off some of the biological endpoint based testing. So I think that's going to be a bare minimum. There was a question around um, limit of quantitation, Kevin and Taryn, I'll, I'll let you take that one later. But segueing into clinical evaluation, if there is an alternate material used, and if you're able to show that through chem characterization that the safety aspect, your tox risk assessment is better or probably, you know, just as much as what it was with the previous material, maybe you can get away with the equivalence argument and not having to generate additional clinical data. But if that's not really the case, 
right? You also have to demonstrate that your, that your device performance hasn't changed. Now, if it's not a like-for-like like substitute, I struggle with understanding how the device performance is going to remain unimpacted because these PFAS materials are in there for very specific reasons, chemical, physical, biological. So that's one thing that really needs to shake out. And if the alternate material has an impact in terms of device performance, and even if the safety is okay, now you're going to have to generate a certain degree of clinical data, even if it is at an observational level with a slightly smaller sample size with whatever justifications you can come up. But that impact on your clinical evaluation is going to be significant. And it's really going to depend on whether you can rely on equivalence or if you have to go out and prospectively collect any more data. And this impact is going to be even more severe going from a transient use device all the way to an implantable because these PFAS substances are used in all kinds of devices. So biological safety, for sure. I'm not, I'm not really sure how you can do without any chemical characterization. To me, that's, that's really the base that you all will stand up on as far as this change is concerned. And then the impact on clinical evaluation is going to have to be looked at very, very carefully. It's going to start with, are you going to be able to use equivalence? In fact, my mind goes out to an example, um, <clears throat> which was when I used to be a reviewer, the CMR substances, the you know the 0.1% weight-to-weight consideration around carcinogenic, mutagenic, and toxicological uh, toxicologically reproductive substances, CMR substances, came up with the MDR, and you had that 0.1% limitation, a lot of manufacturers decided to um, either change to an alternate material, in which case there was a lot of chem characterization that was involved, or what manufacturers with very large product portfolios did is they they talked with their notified bodies, and this was found to be acceptable at the time, and they decided to to conduct extensive testing on the worst case representative device. And whatever they found on there would have an impact to labeling and so on and so forth. So even in those cases, there were there was a significant impact as far as chem characterization is concerned, and that absolutely had to be done. And then the impact of clinical evaluation was considered later on, once again, dependent on whether equivalence worked out or not. So that's what I wanted to say in, ter- in terms of We've had examples in the past. CMR substances is one thing that readily flies to my mind. Um, and the industry has seen this before. So that bit's not new. Some of the background work is going to be a little more extensive. Thank you. That's a great segue. Let's get to Michael's question, because when you talk about that that uh, extensive testing, he was specifically mm-hmm. asking about discussing the PFAS analysis techniques and limits of detection capabilities. I don't know, Kevin, if you can talk to that specifically. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'll preface maybe with um, some of what Taryn was talking about a little bit earlier in terms of the toxicology of these substances. And that's clearly going to be a factor in what analytical sensitivity is required or any particular chemical, um, you know, there is a potential that that research could lead towards or away from the sort of TTC approach for these types of chemicals. Um, and if if that does occur, then you know, obviously there's a, there's more to do in terms of sensitivity. Um, with respect of the to the current paradigm where where that approach is is still intact, um, sensitivity. Is, is generally not a, a large issue for these compounds, but it's, it's still 
you know, we can't get around the fact that, that we're not just talking about a single thing. So there's a wide range of different uh, responses of these types of chemicals on, on the different analytical instrumentation that we use. Um, but generally speaking, um, using uh, UHPLC, high-resolution mass spectrometers, uh, triple quadrupole instruments, we're capable of reaching the sensitivity limits that are required currently. So those types of methods, um, whether they be HPLC-based or GC-based, um, are sensitive enough for the current paradigm. But again, with more work in the toxicology of these chemicals, that could change in the future. And then, Kevin, do you want to talk about combustion ion chromatography sensitivity and how that fits into this picture? Yeah, sure. And, yeah, and sure. sure. And, yeah. And so yeah. specifically, that's that's specifically sort of the that's method sort of that um, gets us to total quantity of fluorine. It's, it's a very unique method. It's a very complicated set of instrumentation that is an absolute nightmare to work with in the laboratory, but it is the only way to get at that piece of information. Um, the sensitivity there is also pretty good. Again, it's it's going to you, you're certainly going to have to factor in the fact that it's not just one chemical again that we're looking at. Um, but we have the advantage in, in that type of methodology of, of really using large sampling to affect sensitivity. So, um, you know, again, in general, that type of methodology can get us really in the ballpark that we need to be um, for a risk assessment based on a TTC approach. Um, and then, you know, depending on if a particular chemical was of concern, then we can go to those other methods that can get far lower than that. Um, you know, currently, the, the the triple quadrupole instrumentation that's available out there from a variety of different manufacturers is capable of, of uh, parts per um, trillion type detection limits in solution uh, for these types of chemicals. Thank you. And I think I, I think Pedro, Pedro from Brazil, by the way, thank you, Pedro from Brazil for joining our discussion today. I actually think his question is interesting, too. He's asking about chemical characterization. Is it enough to assess the presence of the PFAS contamination on a device that doesn't have this component on the bill of material? So kind of back to your getting in the weeds with the technique. But I think it's an interesting reverse question. Are you able to actually use your current testing to clarify if there's actually contamination on the device itself if PFAS is not on the bomb. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll quickly address the, the sort of analytical aspect of that, and then maybe Alexia or Jay or Taryn can, can chime in with some of the, the regulatory issues. Um, you know, it, it provided that the chemical characterization work was done sufficiently using, you know, modern um, instrumentation and methodology, and, and that's a, a whole can of worms that maybe we won't get into because there's been a lot of movement in terms of what's state of the art in terms of this testing. Um, provided that in the absence of those types of chemicals, I, I don't think current materials would be of concern. But again, as, as Jay mentioned, it's really hard to get away from doing this type of testing if there was a change of material. So you know, I, while I wouldn't be necessarily concerned about materials that are remaining the same and the potential for these contaminants, it would be, um, you know, those new materials that are still going to require testing requirements. Yeah, and I would add to that that 
and the analytical methods don't care whether a substance is intentionally added or not. So they are capable of detecting contaminants in the same way that they're capable of detecting intentionally added constituents. However, by definition, contaminants are usually inconsistent, right? They're not present as consistently in the same quantities in the same way that intentionally added constituents are. And so what that usually means is that if you're trying to rule out contamination, you have to have a fairly large sample size um, from you know, different batches, potentially made at different times. Um, because if you did sort of the typical chemical characterization paradigm on you know, with three replicates, let's say, and they may not even be from different batches or lots, you might not get a broad enough picture of the potential for contamination. So I would just say that thinking about sample size is probably going to be an additional consideration if you're concerned about that as opposed to intentionally added constituents. I feel like it's a bit of a Pandora's box when you start to dig into that area, right? You know, Teresa, I have a quick comment. I wholeheartedly agree with Kevin and Taryn. Um, and I'm going to stick my neck out and assume that when Pedro is talking about contamination, you're talking about something that may have been used as a processing aid by one mm -hmm. of your suppliers. And that's going to be my assumption. And that being the assumption, I'm going to assume that it's consistently there, right? To your point, Taryn. And if that is the case, I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I don't know of any other method other than chem characterization that will actually identify the PFAS in there. Because if you think about it from other perspectives, your other in vitro tests are not nearly as sensitive enough. There are no clinically relevant endpoints that will catch this whatsoever. So what are you left with? It is chem characterization. So my answer to Pedro would, with that assumption would be a yes. Be careful what lab you go to because they really need to be know they really need to know what they're doing and be able to back that up when questions from the regulators come up. But yeah, That's, that was an excellent well, discussion. Thank you. And I'll add one point on that one: is this is a one-time occurrence. You, you've got a sample. Looking at that mm -hmm. data would help you understand where you might have problems in your supply chain. But contaminants really come down to your supplier controls, understanding who your suppliers are, what that chain is, and that you have adequate controls through that whole process. And I think we've certainly seen that there are limitations on some of that as there's been a lot more outsourcing over the years and a lot more focus on it now. And maybe this is a good time to go look at that as we're in, in making these improvements. Focus on your supplier controls as well. That could be a whole other webinar, Jim. <laughs> nice plug. Yeah. I want to switch back. We have, I see just two more audience questions. And then I think I had one or two other ones um, that we wanted to cover. But Lexi, I'm going to put you on the spot. There was a question specifically for you, rock star that you are. So um, Nicole's asking, what mechanism is available to engage FDA to gain their acceptance of the comparative approach Taryn had mentioned previously? Currently, chemists at OSEL, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, are not accepting of those strategies. But this type of strategy is going to be critical, as Kevin had mentioned. Can you talk at all about that to answer Nicole's question? Yeah, definitely. So my first answer to you would be to utilize the pre-submission process. Um, I think the scope of what FDA's pre-submission process covers is quickly expanding, um, just as, you know, 
issues like the PFAS, finding alternatives to your PFAS, um, getting that proactive buy-in from FDA is going to be critical before you start all of your testing, right? So um, the pre-submission process, you know, if if you have specific questions for toxicologists, FDA will bring those toxicologist um, experts into the discussion. And um, usually that's a good starting point. Again, the pre-submission process is not never a binding process, so things can always change, right? Um, FDA is also trying to solidify their stance on, on these topics as the landscape evolves. Um, but that's usually the best place to start. And then can I just add one thing to that? Um, I don't know if whoever asked this question is aware, but there has been a little bit of reorganization at FDA um, that has in particular affected the OSOL chemistry team. So many of those chemists no longer report through OSOL. They have they now report through various OPEC-reviewed divisions um, or groups. So that um, potentially changes the dynamic a little bit in terms of what is considered acceptable and pathway to acceptability and um, how those decisions are made within FDA. And then addi additionally, there have also been some discussions ongoing between FDA's chemists and a couple of key industry leaders in this area. And one of one of the topics is this comparative study topic and you know, understanding what might be acceptable there in terms of reporting criteria. So it is true that this has been challenging historically with the FDA, particularly over the last couple of years, but we think that we are going to see some movement in this area. And I think that this PFAS topic and the potential volume of testing and review that is going to accompany it might be a good um, incentive for FDA to consider those, you know, those comparative studies a little bit more strongly and arrive at some agreement with industry on what's acceptable there. So yeah, to echo what Alexia said, um, engaging early and trying to arrive at agreement with FDA for your specific set of products is probably a good idea. And I wouldn't just assume that they won't accept it because I think there is some opportunity here um, for that to look different to how it has looked in the past. And then just, just from the perspective of labs doing this testing, I think it's it's really important to, to have the fortitude to have those discussions. You know, once that pre-submission happens, if the, if the reviewers of that have questions about the methodology and concerns, I think, it, it, it's really in the best interest of everybody for the laboratory at that point to explain the thinking behind the process that's going to be used and, and to really try to come to an understanding as to how these methodologies can move forward. Because um, it, it's clear that we need to have a mechanism by which to address smaller changes that are still significant and require this testing without having, having to reinvent the wheel for the entire device. Otherwise, it's just going to bog everyone down and we just can't make these types of changes anymore. No, that's excellent. Thank you. I did want to get to Michael's question because it, it does, it, it's the, I think he's trying to look for how do you cover yourself? So when we're talking about these regulatory submissions, he's asking is a not intentionally added, um, he has that in quotes, statement or declaration acceptable to a regulatory body or are test results required to show that there is no PFAS in the device itself. So I think they're, again, right, we're being creative, right? We're trying to find 
how do we cover ourselves? Does Alexia, are you, did you want to stick your neck out now and try to answer that question? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, right now in the medical device industry, what is prevailing are these essential use arguments saying like there are really no better alternatives to this material because this is accomplishing what we want it to accomplish, whether it's some sort of antimicrobial surface or, or whatever. Um, and I feel like, uh, I, feel, I think Michael's question kind of plays into that a little bit um, in a way because, um, you know, there, I, ultimately you're not going to, we don't know what FDA is going to accept or what, sorry, I should say any health authority is going to accept or not accept just yet in terms of PFAS. But I can, I do imagine that um, if we move in a direction such that chem characterization is performed on a lot more devices than before, um, there is going to have to be some sort of explanation or justification provided if PFAS do show up in the results, even if they were not intentionally added. Um, whether the health authority is going to accept that or not is it's hard to say, but I do think, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's best it's best practice to justify. Um, as much as possible, the presence of certain um, elements in, in your in your test results, um, even if they're not intentional. Um, I think part of the exercise of going through a detailed documentation with your health authority of the different materials that are being used, so like the bill of materials, um, materials, as well as manufacturing aids and agents that are used throughout the process, as well as any potential information from your supplier, too, on what may have been used as part of the manufacturing process. I think giving that transparency is going to be only beneficial. Um, whether they actually accept the, the declaration or not, it's, it's, at this point in time, hard to say. Risa, I want yes. to stick my neck out some more. Oh, no. Do you have a neck left, Jay? I'm not yeah, sure. It's, it's growing shorter. I won't have any <laughs> remaining by the end of this. Go but ahead. <laughs> again, this is, you know, this is purely me speculating. But, you know, um, I know Alexia has been, been on the other side. I have. If this was, and I'm, I, I want to look at this from a risk management perspective first, right? If we were still in the 14971-2007 timeframe, uh, you, and I'm trying to oversimplify the saying, we warned you of the risk of death and left it there. But come to the current version of 14971, by warning somebody of the risk of death, you're not warding off the risk of death, right? So that's what I'm trying to say is that's how much risk management by way of the standard has evolved. And from that perspective, saying that it's not intentionally added and looking at through the prism of where EU currently is with where they want specific quantitation when it comes to CMR substances, right? The other angle of looking at it is they're considering this under the REACH proposal. It's a proposal under the REACH regulation. I really doubt that a statement saying, so risk management considerations as well as the current regulatory climate in the EU, all things considered, I doubt not intentionally added will be acceptable. Now, that said, I want to bring us back to where we started. And this discussion is essentially because 3M is exiting 
the business as far as PFAS is concerned. So you're going to have a supply chain issue before you can continue using this particular material in your device. So that's that's part one. The second part of the problem about how do we address labeling if that's ever found to be acceptable is a little later. So just, just wanted to bring us back to calibration here. Not to minimize that question in any way, I really don't see that um, being acceptable, but that's just me speculating at this point. And now I don't have a neck remaining. So. <laughs> Your necklace. <laughs> No, that's perfect. And actually, it gets to one of the last questions um, so from someone in the audience. Nick in the audience was kind of challenging a little bit, saying, you know, an opinion of, is it better to do, they're saying it's really better to be more targeted with the analysis for those specific PFAS compounds versus doing any sort of a full exhaustive extraction yeah. per um uh, 1093, uh, 10, um, 2018. And they're just saying, given the sensitivity of the modern in instrumentation and methodology, the non-targeted extractions may actually generate data that raises more questions than answers. I actually thought that was kind of an important question to open up here at the end, and we are going to be coming to, to a close of our presentation. But do we want to touch on that a little bit? I, I think they're saying that's their opinion, but they're, they're welcoming a challenge to that thought process. I'll, I'll start. I'm sure Kevin has opinions about this as well. Um, theoretically, I completely agree. If it is possible to do targeted analysis, meaning if you know exactly what you're supposed to be looking for, you know exactly which PFAS chemicals might be present in your device and you're able to target them specifically, that is certainly a better approach if all you're doing is eliminating those or trying to demonstrate that they're not present, for example. However, the practical reality is not quite as straightforward as that. As we've already talked about, there are many of these substances. We're not talking about two or three. We're talking about potentially hundreds. And they all, or many of them, have the potential to degrade, which introduces different substances. And it can be difficult, as we've also already discussed, to know exactly what the possibilities are in terms of contamination. So if you're using an intentionally added coating to your heart valve, let's say, you probably know what the coating is. But if you're talking about process aids or other things that may be way downstream within your supplier, supplier, supplier's manufacturing process, it's very difficult to know exactly what types of chemistry you're looking at. And so unless you're doing some sort of generic fluorine quantitation with combustion ion chromatography like we were talking about earlier, you're going to have a hard time knowing what to target and therefore doing the targeted analysis. Um, so I think pra the practical reality is a little bit more challenging than the theory on this. And also that only works if you're not actually changing a material, if you're just trying to prove that you know something isn't present there. If you're doing a material change, you are probably going to be expected to do a non-targeted screening study to evaluate what else you might have introduced as a result of that material change. Yeah, yeah I think that's yeah, exactly the exactly the kind of the crux of this. As as Jay sort of just mentioned, you know, the whole context of this is sort of you may need to be changing materials because of 3M exiting, um, and so you're unlikely to get away from that part 18 screening analysis that needs to be done to support that material change. Now, I, I think I, I also completely agree with the person asking the question that in analytical terms, 
the process by which we determine whether or not there may be a particular PFAS material in a in a device or in a product or wherever, it, it is obviously better to do a targeted analysis on that. It's um, it, it's more of kind of where the question is. And I think, you know, as I think Jim mentioned at the very beginning, there are some very long-term, you know, potential effects of all of this. And, and that may relate to eventually regulators saying that, that PFAS are, you know, a special class of chemicals that need to be addressed separately and we need to look at that. Um, but it, it seems, at least to me, uh, so maybe I'll be the one sticking my neck out, um, that that's a long ways down the road, um, just in terms of trying to eliminate these types of chemicals from a device. And, and the, the most acute need right now is the need to address the material change that will be required due to the supply chain issues that are coming right now. Excellent. So it depends. Is that what you said, Kevin? <laughs> it always, it always, always depends. <laughs> it's either maybe or depends, right? Um, I think we're going to wrap this up, everyone. This has been fantastic. Thank you to everybody with the community discussion on our chat. It's been awesome. Just to finalize everything, I want to do a quick round robin. I want a quick take home. What's maybe the quick take home you want to make sure everyone remembers from this presentation? And Jay, Necklace Jay, start with you. Oh my Just goodness. one though. You, want to start with you can me? only do one. I'm sorry. You can only do one. <laughs> right. So let me let me target the response to the survey, which said, you know, 71% people are interested in the nuances around selecting an alternate material. You are most likely going to be tempted to go with something else that's already proven to work in your product portfolio. It may not be as simple as a plug and play, right? You you have to look at device performance. There is definitely going to be impact to biological safety and impact to chem characterization is not so much from that swap that you're going to make. You may just be able to justify on paper that we're making that swap. We don't need any more testing. There is considerable risk associated with that kind of an approach because it's not just that one material. It's also the interactions in your final device that you need to be looking at that chem characterization will be looking at. So whatever approach you choose, please be sure to do a detailed risk assessment, detailed impact assessment right at the level of your bill of materials without ignoring your aspects of your supply chain and that's all I got. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you. Kevin, you're up. Oh, great. The hot seat. Um, I, I think what I'd love to leave everyone with is, um, you know, sort of if you're not in that situation that Jay just mentioned, where you have a, a clear alternative material already at your fingertips and, and ready to plug in um, and looking at a variety of different materials to not only think about the mechanical properties of that material, but also the chemistry, because, you know, as I think we've highlighted here, chemical characterization testing and assessment of the safety of whatever is coming from that material is going to be necessary. So consideration early in the process of the chemistry and potential extractables from that new material is really important such that you don't wind up with a margin of safety problem during that characterization study later on down the line when there's really no time left to make a different choice. 
So, you know, really, really can help with that upfront. Um, we've been doing polymer chemistry here at the laboratory for 40 years. And so those decisions are something we can help with if there are folks out there that are looking for assistance. Thank you, Kevin. Alexia. Yeah, my, my um, takeaway would be we have to be proactive and um, to put in a, a regulatory pitch um, that also involves getting earlier buy-in with the FDA um, if possible. Um, there, there is such a thing as too many pre-submissions, but when the topic is in the bar for um, PFAS is constantly going to be changing. Um, I think, you know, there isn't necessarily such a thing as too many pre-submissions. Um, so I would definitely suggest um, companies out there be proactive in approaching FDA and, and discussing these, being transparent with FDA and figuring out a, a solution together. Excellent. Make a plan, work the plan. That's what I'm hearing, right? All right, yeah. Jim. Yeah, I think this is, um, we have a short timeline. We've got two years to do four years of work. And I think we've got to be aware that businesses need to continue. You need to be selling your product. So you need to take a risk-based approach as you dig through your supply chain to truly make sure your high-run parts, your critical products are stay on the market. And I think this is something that as businesses, we will expect people to be looking at is what are you, where is your major risk? Your your class three products, your high high revenue products, the ones that are have them are likely to have the most PFAS content. Get these started right away. Get your focus on those. Your class one products, if you have to wait a bit, understand. But get those critical products started because there's a lot of things that have to happen along the way to get those done on the market. Excellent advice, Jim. Thank you. Taryn, last but not least. Well, since I'm last, everybody else has already stolen my takeaways. <laughs> so I suppose I'll just say, since everyone has already talked about the details, I would say look at the big picture, particularly for bigger med device companies. Um, there may be parts of your portfolio that you're neglecting to look at at the moment in favor of others that seem more critical, but it would be unfortunate to leave those behind. And then perhaps secondarily, again, for the big med device companies, this may be a unique opportunity to gain some traction with regulatory agencies in terms of um, defining and agreeing on approaches for these types of changes. This really cannot be a crisis every time we have a uh, a widespread material change issue in the medical product field without any solution. And so if there is an opportunity to work together um, as larger medical device or medical product companies to agree on some sort of path forward with regulatory agencies, I think this is an area with some leverage and it would be really nice to see some traction come out of this in terms of better alignment on on what the right pathway should be to qualify changes like this. It would be. Thank you, Taryn. Fantastic. All right, everybody. Thank you so much, Stephen. Back to you. I'm coming back. That was awesome, everybody. Thank you. What a wonderful way to start the year. Um, before I say anything further, I dropped a survey link in the chat a relentless amount of times. So I'm going to do it one more time just to, um, it really helps us. If you take 45 seconds or so to complete that, 
Um, it will help us make these better and let us know how we're doing in general. So we really appreciate any of you who take the time to do that. Uh, we will send a follow-up email tomorrow with the recording um, and a summary of the questions that we covered. We'll share another link to the presentation slides that you saw today, as well as the bonus slides tacked onto the end of that PDF. We'll also be publishing the show to RQM Plus Device Advice Podcast, which we hope you'll subscribe to. Uh, and more than that, if you enjoyed the session today, we definitely appreciate any of the five any five star review you want to give on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Uh, those help get the conversations in front of more people. Uh, finally, I shared a link earlier to the RQM Plus LinkedIn company page, but if you spend time there, we hope you'll follow us there. And that wraps up the show. Thanks so much for being here, for your questions. Thanks to the panelists, moderator, Teresa. And we're just uh, glad you were with us. So thank you. See you, everybody. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye.